Well, welcome back to our ladies who went on a ladies retreat. Did y'all have fun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heard great things. Miss Sherry, thank you for sharing part of your story. And uh, Kimberly, my wife, got to share a little bit as well. And I uh, heard you guys stayed up too long, ate too much, but uh, prayed a lot. So that's good. But uh, we were praying for you. And I, I, uh, I always like to see, you know, after I've noticed on men's retreats even, uh, and I noticed on women's retreats even this morning afterwards, the Sunday after, you can see those people who are on retreat together. You can see that they just are closer. Uh, people who never hugged before, they're hugging on Sunday morning after retreat. You know, and uh, I think that says something about what the Lord does when we get away and we uh, we're not just away with each other, but we're open with each other. And so I'll continue to pray for you ladies as God continues to work out everything he began this past weekend. Today, we will consider the fourth of what I'm giving you as six schemes of the devil, six weeks on Satan and we are on. Scheme number four, if he can't deceive you and lead you into error, if he can't discredit you and leave your life unbelievable, if he can't distract you and get you chasing something other than godliness and the kingdom, then guess what he'll try next? The next best thing will be to divide you, to divide you. That's the topic of this morning's series, six weeks on Satan. Even... um, A chaplain knows that it's the most basic of military strategies to divide and conquer. You don't have to have gone to the Naval War College to know. Divide and conquer is a basic military strategy. It always has been before they gave it a name. It's always been used. It's obvious and it's simple. To divide means to separate into parts, to split up, listen, to sever. To conquer means to gain mastery over someone, something by physical or mental or moral force. Put them together and here's what you get. The concept of divide and conquer conquer is an approach to a problem or task. Attempting to achieve an objective by breaking it into smaller parts. Often it's used to separate a force that would be stronger if united. Or to cause confusion among The factions. Divide and conquer has applications in many areas, from political science to economic and military strategy, and I would include relational areas like your home, like your friendships, and like the body of Christ. The divide and conquer can be used to isolate portions of an enemy force, to isolate, hopefully making them easier to defeat. Making your enemies fight on multiple fronts can cause, listen to this now, because it, it's, as I think about this, this last uh, sentence here, and I think about what Satan does to not just the individual church, but the church among denominations and the church uh, universal around the world, it, it seems uh, most applicable, unfortunately. Making your enemies fight on multiple fronts can also cause confusion, and logistical challenges with supply. Imagine what the church could do if we were unified and we remained that way. I mean, imagine the supply chain that would be for the body of Christ if we weren't so in it for ourselves or defending our own territory or running our own little thing over here and they've got their little thing over here. But what if we looked at ministries as we're all in this together and there was no sense of competition or we're right, we're wrong. And there needs to be some of that when error comes in But isn't it a shame all the while? 
Satan would love to divide his enemy, wouldn't he? John Calvin saw that the devil's chief mode of attacking the Christian in the church was divide and conquer. Divide and conquer. Uh, I hope you've realized up to this point in our series that although we are dealing with these schemes of the devil individually, Satan doesn't use just one weapon against us at a time. (laughs) And that's kind of rare, actually. The genius of Satan is that he'll throw everything and anything at us, including the kitchen sink. Think with me just for a moment, even in reverse order. He can discredit you by deceiving you with error, can't he? Let me say that again. He can discredit you by deceiving you with error. Get you into error, and now you're unbelievable. He can distract you with materialism and greed and thus discredit you. You need only turn on uh, one of the religious channels on your cable television. And even as a Christian, you begin to watch this, and you see greed and materialism. And some of what you hear preached causes you to automatically say, I don't want anything to do with anything like that. And you're in Christ. Imagine what those in the world are saying. And they, and they are saying, I, I, they don't want anything to do with that. You see, he could, use, he could use the distraction of materialism, greed among believers to discredit us. And he can divide you by any and all of the above, can't he? He could take any one of the things we've talked about already. Deception, disqualification or discrediting us, distraction. And he can use any one of those to therefore divide us. He's genius. Can error in the flock divide us? Sure can. We have unity in truth. We cannot have unity in error. It's a basic scheme of the devil to try and get the church into error and therefore divide the church. You see, he'll take one scheme and use it to accomplish another. Can being discredited or morally disqualified in the body of Christ, can, can someone falling immorally, can that divide us? It can. It's a shame, but it often does. We get somebody who falls flat on their face, and instead of picking them up, helping them up, helping dust them off, helping walk them through repentance, then we get very legalistic and very self-righteous, don't we? And we forget that those who have been forgiven much ought to love much. We start to lose memories of how sinful maybe we were in our past and think that somehow we were smarter, more moral, more deserving of God's grace. But guess what? You were forgiven as just as much. In times when we should be we should be pouring out grace, instead, maybe through Satan's deceptions, maybe through him whispering lies of our own self righteousness into our life. We look at another man in our, in our own congregation. We look at another woman in our congregation who's, who's tripped, who's fallen, and we, and we put ourselves above them. We're varsity and they're JV. And we end up divided on separate levels and then separate teams. Uh, let me remind you that the scripture that is the uh, theme for our series, and it's probably all too small for you to read on our slide there, is about this very thing, Corinthians Do not be unaware of his schemes, church. It's a clip taken out of the context where Paul is addressing the church that Satan is going to take advantage of them not restoring somebody who's fallen into sin. They had a guy who fell into sin. He repented. He was brokenhearted. He was was at the point where he was being discouraged because the body wasn't receiving him back. And Paul comes back to the church and says, whoa, 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 whoa. You did the right thing by addressing the sin, but guess what? You're not handling it correctly in his repentance. You're stiff-arming a guy 
who needs our grace. And he says, you know what? Satan's having his way once again. That can happen. That can happen. Can being distracted divide us? Can, can our attentions being pulled off course from whatever God has called us to be doing, can that divide us? Yeah. Well, I think we need to be going this way. Well, I think we need to be going this way. Well, I think this is essential or this is important. No, I think this is a priority. One of the reasons we try in our member process is to just make our intentions clear as to what the vision and what the priorities of Cornerstone are is so that we're not divided in purpose. I've said it before that there are a million things that the church can do, that the local church and congregation can do. But there are some things that we must do. Part of our priorities are built so that we, we make sure we accomplish the essential things and not be distracted by all maybe even the good things we could be doing and therefore miss the things we have to be doing. The church all the time, and it's a device of the adversary, finds itself split, severed from one another, trying to accomplish different things and sometimes even good things. Isn't that tricky? But then we find ourselves divided. Satan doesn't just pick up one weapon at a time against us. That's the point. The stronger you grow in faith, the more he will have to throw at you, and he will throw it all at you. John Wesley would say in his memoirs that in the times when he felt like he was not being persecuted, when he felt like Satan was not coming against him, he'd fall on his knees and ask God where he had gone wrong. He expected the adversary to come against him. Nehemiah 5 is an interesting passage. Last week, if you remember, we were in Nehemiah 6. Don't turn. I just want to give you a glimpse into the chapter right before last week. Just to make the point that last week we talked about how Satan would love to distract us. And we saw Nehemiah working feverishly on the restoration of the wall there in Israel. And he was so intent on his work that even when the adversaries would come and try and distract him off course, try and pull him away, even for good things. Hey, Nehemiah, we're throwing a party down here in the valley. Why don't you come on and hang out with us? He says, I can't leave what I'm doing here. I'm about a great work for God. I can't be distracted by that. And he stayed the course. That was where we were last week. Can I, can I just give you a glimpse into Nehemiah? The chapter just before that, guess what the adversary was trying? Even before he tried to distract him, He tried to divide him. Listen to the first verse of Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there was a great outcry of the people. And by the people it means those among the nation of Israel who were there with Nehemiah to restore the wall. Those who he would say in the next chapter have a great work to accomplish. And in chapter 5 we hear the sad words. There was a great outcry among the people against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who were saying this, and there were those who were saying that. There were those who were doing this, we read, and those who were doing that. And there was, there was turmoil, and they were button heads. And Nehemiah is looking around, and in verse 6 it says, It made him angry when I heard their outcry. Because I can imagine Nehemiah is looking around and saying, This whole thing is about to fall apart right in front of me. Everything that I've gone through to get to this point, it's about to fall apart right here. And so Nehemiah just halts everything. He calls a meeting. He says, Listen. This can't happen. Listen to what he says. The thing which you are doing is not good. That's the basic. That's number one. But more importantly, listen to what he says. Verse 9. Should you not walk in the fear of our God or in reverence of our God because the reproach of the nations, our enemies. 
What that means is that Nehemiah was keenly aware that there were those around the nations that surrounded this nation, this family nation, who were watching. And as he's looking around the house and seeing the family bicker, he realizes this whole thing could fall apart. Everything that we're doing for the glory of God could fall apart. And everything that we're doing for the glory of God in front of these people could fall apart right here. And Nehemiah says, we've got we to stop it right now. Do you not realize what we're doing is wrong? And do you not realize that it is, it is dividing us and it will destroy the glory of God by our work? Um, I feel like I've preached a dozen sermons, if not more, on the unity of the body of Christ. So I'm not going to do that this morning. It would be easy. I could go to multiple passages, passages I've preached here before as we've gone through Philippians or Ephesians or a number of other passages, Old and New Testament, that address the unity of the body of Christ. I could go to a number of them and preach an easy message on how the church can be divided by the schemes of the devil. You know that. I've, I've done tons of those sermons. If you're interested, see me after, shoot me an email. I'll send you a link to any one of those sermons. I'm not going to do that this morning. The reason why I'm not going to do that is not because it's not important. It is important to this body. That's why I've preached so many times on it. It's prevalent in, in the New Testament especially. As Paul writes his letters, he addresses over and over and over how Satan can defeat our purposes by dividing our church. So it's certainly important. In fact, it's so important that in our seven-member expectations, it is number seven, that we have a commitment to guard the unity of the body of Christ. Now, it's not number seven on a list of seven because it's least important. It's number seven so that you don't forget it. <laughs> it's kind of the, uh, the idea of the last one you see is the one you might remember the most. And so it's number seven, not because it's the least. It's number seven because maybe it's, it's maybe the most important. Because if you drop the ball on that one, it doesn't matter how well you uphold the others. So it's not that the unity of the body is not important that I'm not going to preach on it this morning. But there's another area that I do want to focus this scheme of the devil on this morning. The truth is, the church cannot stand if the home breaks down. The truth is that the church will not stand. Our church, just think about Cornerstone Church. It will not stand, it will not be effectual in this small town, in this community, if our homes break down. Is that right? Amen. We can fight for our unity here all we want, but if we lose at home, Satan wins. So let me, uh, let me share personally for a moment with you. Uh, this is actually, this series is actually uh, one of my more selfish series. I needed this series because more and more I've realized that Satan is, um, is against me and my family. And so this has been a little bit of a, uh, a series for my own benefit, if no one else's. Since I began in, uh, in ministry, it's been a, a fight for truth, number one. You know, if we just look through the schemes of the devil that we've covered already, the first one being deception, from the very beginning, from the time Kimberly and I said, hey, we're willing to, to start a church from scratch, uh, and all the way since, it's been a fight day after day to keep our church on track and out of error. And it always will be. It always will be. But it's a fight nonetheless. All along the way, personally, I would say that there have been moral landmines just waiting on me. And there always will be. I had a professor in seminary 
Dr. Jack McGorman, a little old Irish guy, a little bald guy. He always reminded me of a little turtle, the tortoise and the hare turtle from Bugs Bunny. I don't know why. Um, he always wore the same gray suit every day, preached, taught at the seminary for I don't know how many years. He's passed on now. They've named a building after him. If you asked anybody who was in seminary at that same time or any time while this guy was a professor and you say, who are your top three professors that you love to be in class with? Inevitably, Jack McGorman would be one. I had him for Romans and Galatians. And there wasn't a day that went by where this old guy just didn't weep over the Word of God. He didn't bring any other textbooks in except for this small Bible. It was a New Testament Bible. He was teaching us a New Testament book. And uh, one day, halfway into the semester, I realized that he was not teaching out of an English Bible. He was teaching out of the Greek New Testament. It was no parallel. It was just the Greek. And he would read it to us as if he were reading English. I was blown away. I was blown away by him for many reasons, though. I remember one day in class, we were talking about sin and how sin devastates us and how Satan would have his way with the believer if he chooses to. And um, I remember one of the students, and you gotta, you got to imagine and remember that in seminary, at least in this class, it was the majority of men, young men in their, in their early 20s, not many even who were married. And one young guy raised his hand and boldly asked the question of Dr. McGorman. Dr. McGorman, when, we were talking about morality and, and, and battling sin, he says, when does lust start getting easier? And I remember Dr. McGorman uh, thinking for just a moment, looked towards the ceiling, and he looked back at this guy and says, I'm 88. It's not getting any easier. <laughs> that wasn't a very encouraging answer. But it was the truth. Moral landmines will always be there, right? In the same way, I realize that there will always be opportunities to be distracted. Uh, Satan would have loved for my family to be distracted into one thing or another and not be focused on what God has called us to do here. Many, many times over now our eight years, I don't know if you read the, uh, the note, uh, if you get our emails, that last week was the start of our eighth year. There are many times over the lifespan of a, of a new church that Satan would have you be distracted, have you chasing after some other dream, some other cause, some other, some other priority other than what God has set before you. And that has been the case from beginning to end. Happens a lot. Um, maybe you've heard me say before, but it's worth repeating, that my heroes have changed over the years. It used to be when I first got into ministry that my heroes were the, uh, the popular guys. You know, I would look in, in the preaching circles and I'd see the guys who were well-known and they're on stage and they're, they're being asked to speak and I'd be, wow, that guy, he's, man, that's, that's it right there. That's the guy I want to be. It didn't take too long before I realized that that wasn't enough, right? It wasn't enough to be the popular guy. I mean, I had to have some depth beyond that. And so I went from uh, my hero being the popular guy to my hero being not just the popular guy, but the guy who's actually talented on top of being popular. Because what I realized were there were a lot of guys that were popular that I would scratch my head and say, I have no idea what that guy is talking about. And if it weren't for this huge worship band that just whipped the crowd into just this emotional and passionate frenzy for the Lord, uh, this guy would have nothing to offer. You know, I mean, you've seen you've seen these guys that are able to get up now after, you know, the passion band has just played. And uh, and, and now I, I feel like, man, that guy could say anything. And, the, and the, they'd just be like, amen, let's 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 go fight hell with a water pistol. Right. Um, 
And so I realized that it wasn't enough to be popular. And then I realized not long after this, not just enough to be talented, because there's a lot of talented guys out there, but they don't have much character to back that up either. Or they don't have much um, wisdom to back up their talent. And so my, my heroes went from being the popular guys and the talented guys to the smart guys. The smart guys. And I thought I was getting deeper when I got to that point. And I'm not just about the popular guys. My heroes aren't just the, the talented guys, but that guy who knows his word. Um, sometime later, and it took longer to get to this point, and I, 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 I would confess that I'm still not fully there, and I'm looking to see if there's someone after this. I don't know that there is. But my heroes now are the, the old guys who've been faithful year after year after year. Why? Because I know how easy it is to be deceived, disqualified, and distracted. I mean, that guy who, like Dr. Jack McGorman, who's 88, who's teaching the Word, who's weeping over the Word day after day, pouring into young guys, and he's avoided the landmines, he's avoided the errors, he's avoided the, the, the distractions towards anything else that might beckon his attention. I mean, that's the guy. That's the guy you want to make your hero. That's the woman you want to make your hero. That at the reading of their obituary at the funeral, you have people looking around, and the, in, the, in the final evaluation of their life, they can say, that guy was faithful all the way to the end. That lady was faithful to the very end. It matters very little how popular, how talented, how smart they were if you lose the ability to say you were faithful to the end. Is that right? Yeah. Can I tell you, though, that uh, more difficult for me than being deceived or discredited or distracted is being divided. And I don't mean being divided here just in the church. I mean being divided in my home. If Satan can get me divided at home, then guess what else crumbles? I don't get to sit here. Or if I sit here, I become unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, Kimberly and I, it's funny, we realized, you know, maybe you think, and, and probably not, but maybe... You're, you're being deceived by the devil and you think that Kimberly and I's marriage is uh, perfect. And uh, we've got our two little, you know, two little sweet angel boys and uh, everything in our house is uh, just hunky-dory, as they would say in the old days. Um, those who are closest to us know that's not the truth. I remember when Kimberly and I realized early on in ministry when and where our worst fights would be. And maybe you could guess when the worst disagreements for a pastor and a pastor's wife might come. Saturday night. Any, any clue as to why that might be? Is because of what has to happen on Sunday morning. Uh, I remember when it hit me and I, I laughed out loud when I finally, because I felt like an idiot. And I went to Kimberly and I, after we had just butted heads pretty hard, I went to her and I said, do you realize what's going on here? I said, I don't, I don't believe that we haven't seen this already, but it seems to be a reoccurring theme that we're great all week, and then Saturday night seems to be the time when we get rough around the edges. Why do you think that is? You know, when it hit me is when I would leave the argument, and then I'd try and go and, and wrap up what I'm trying to do here. I'm going to... Finally, Kimberly stopped letting the devil use her so much 
<laughs> to distract me and take me off my focus into the Word. She's in the back, by the way. If I want her to hear a copy of this, I'll, I'll get it to her. If Satan can tear apart your homes, he never has to bother coming into God's house. All right? That's the point. If Satan can tear up our homes, he never even has to bother getting to us here. This series on Satan's schemes is mostly about awareness. It, it hasn't been so much, and I'll do a little bit of this before we're done, but it hasn't been so much about planning our offense as much as it is being aware of his offense so that we have a good defense. You know, I would never recommend that you, you wage war against the devil. We never want to do that. But we do want to put up a good defense. We do want to do all that we can do to, to make our wall strong against his devices. Um, being that this series is about awareness, trying to understand how Satan comes against us, and if we're going to focus on how he divides our homes this morning, let me give you uh, what I found last night, top 10 reasons for division in the home, otherwise known as divorce. And if you Googled it, you can find a hundred of these lists, and many of them uh, have some differences, but most of them overlap in some way. I found one that I really liked. From my counseling experience, uh, these 10 seem to be fair and accurate. You might think that infidelity would be at the top of the list, and it is at the top of many lists, but I think inaccurately. Because typically, infidelity is the presenting problem, or it's the final problem, but it's evidence of problems that have been going on for much longer. And I think this list targets not just the presenting problems, but some of the underlying problems. Listen, number one, very often we get into marriage for the wrong reasons. Does that happen? I think so. Kimberly and I, and I would confess to you that uh, in our immaturity and just lack of wisdom, we probably were getting into being married to one another for many wrong reasons. God has been gracious to us ever since, and he's taught us through those things. But we would have to confess that we got together for some very wrong reasons. Number two, lack of individual identity. Does this happen in marriages? That... The identity of the family is based on one person alone, and it's not, it's not a marriage of identities. You know, what happens a lot when people come into counseling over their marriages is that one or the other, and sometimes both, have lost the identity in the relationship. And there's, there's good and right reason for there to be submission in the home, but there needs to also be an individual identity. You know, when people come and they say things like, I don't know who I am anymore, I've lost myself. That is not healthy. That tends to be a reason. Number three, becoming lost in roles. Becoming lost in roles. One example of that is when um, kids arrive. You forget what it means to just be husband and wife. You forget what it means to be a couple because parenting takes over, right? We have many couples in our church who are, who are facing that right now and, and many others who are about to face it. And some of you who have been through that and you can only chuckle <laughs> that you get it. And some of you have entered the phase of what we call empty nesters. And that's a whole nother problem in regard to figuring out what my new role is here. And now you're looking at a person who you don't remember as a couple. You only see as the, the, the partner in parenting. I, uh, I remember a story of a man and woman who had reached their empty nester years. 
kids had gone off to college and they find themselves on the couch for one of the very first times, just them, the house is quiet, he's reading the paper, she's clicking through the television. And she stops and in a very meek and mild and loving way, she leans over to her husband, pulls his bifocals off, and she says, you know, when you don't have your glasses on, you look just like the young man I married, that handsome young man I married all these years ago. And he nodded and he smiled. And he said, honey, when I have my glasses off, you're just as pretty as you ever were as well. I don't know what that has to do with this message, but I thought it was good. Oh, becoming lost in the roles. It's a challenge every phase we go through. Number four, not having shared vision of success. What happens when you get into a marriage and you never really talked about? Here's where I think life needs to go. And you find out now once you are married, once you are bound together, tied together, that what I what I perceive as life's goal to be is this. And what they perceive as life's goal to be is this. And guess what? You have, you, have, you have two ox bound by the same yoke trying to pull in two different directions. And that never works out well. Number five, intimacy. Intimacy. Um, that's a whole other sermon for another day. But can I tell you that uh, intimacy... It is uh, very often one of the presenting problems, and at the root of it are many of these other problems. But you know where, where, I, where I always have a red flag, and I've seen it in, in very close friends, is when they, when they tell me, in retrospect, we haven't, we haven't been sleeping in the same room for X number of months, years. And unfortunately, that always comes in retrospect, doesn't it? I hear that story when they're telling me that they're they're headed to their lawyer. Intimacy. Six, unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. This is a big one. Maybe you had a fairy tale dream of what marriage, what a marriage partner should be. The question needs to be is they are your expectations what God has designed marriage to be? Very often we have expectations based on societal norms, based on what Hollywood says need to be expectations in marriage, but they're not godly expectations. They're not biblical expectations. I would tell you that Kimberly and I probably got into marriage having some of our own very personal and selfish expectations about what marriage needs to be, what a husband needs to be, and what a wife needs to be. And when we started to realize that that expectation wasn't getting met in that other person, we had a decision to make. What do we do here? Do we bail on this thing because she's not meeting my expectations? Well, what does God say our expectations need to be? And maybe we can both agree on that. Finances is a big one. Interesting, however, is it's not a lack of finances that seems to be the deal breaker. But it's the disagreement on what to do with finances or how to use finances or how to navigate through a lack of finances. It's not necessarily the lack of finances itself. Eight, being out of touch being out of touch. And that just doesn't mean like we're long-distance relationship couple. He travels a lot. She travels a lot. It's a very literal thing as well. The hugs go away. The kisses on the cheek go away. Those moments of intimacy outside of the most intimate times, when those things start to go away, problems are soon to follow. Number nine. 
different priorities, different interests. Number 10, inability to resolve conflicts. It's not that conflicts won't arise. Conflicts will arise. The question is, are we going to be able to resolve those conflicts? I give you these as a sampling of ways Satan can creep in and divide your home. It's been said that the best defense is a good offense. If we want to defend our marriages, we need to be proactive. Men, listen, men, you need to be proactive. And that's not easy for us. It's not easy for me. It's not enough just to defend your marriage. You've got to go on the offensive, guys. You have to be proactive. When you leave this place and you think about this sermon, guys, if that's the only thing you think about, let it be. Lord, how do I need to be more proactive in guarding the unity of my marriage? You know, the best way to keep weeds out of your yard? It's not simply by pulling the weeds. That would seem like the obvious answer. But it's by fertilizing your lawn. Don't just deal with the issues as they pop up and yank them up. Be proactive and choke out the weeds by having a healthy, vibrant, growing relationship. So if I had to give you a secret to unity, whether it be in the church, whether it be at home, or whether it be in your friendships, because that's a whole other area of life we could talk about in regards to how Satan would divide us. Satan would love to just divide our individual relationships, wouldn't he? But if I had to give you a secret on any of those fronts of battle where Satan would come against us, here it is. A standard beyond any one of us that we can all agree upon and ascribe to. That's the secret. Let me say it again. Having a standard outside of any one of us because we're all, we're all tarnished. We're all broken in some way. We're all subjective. Maybe you can think about it that way. We need a standard outside of ourselves that's not shaky, that doesn't shift underneath us. The secret to guarding against division, the secret to guarding the unity of this house, of your house, of your relationships, is to have a standard outside of any one of the individuals involved that all can agree to and that all can ascribe to. Namely, that standard has to come from God. Why? Because He is the only non-subjective one. He is the only absolute in heaven and on earth. He is the only absolute thing you can stand upon. When storms come, He is, as Scripture would indicate, He is the solid rock foundation to stand upon. All other ground is shifting sand. All other ground is shifting sand. You stand on your priorities. You stand on your desires. It shifts right out underneath of you, much less anyone else. The standard we have to stand upon has to be a solid, absolute one. And that only comes from God. We need an absolute standard for how we live in this house together as a church family. We need absolute standards for how we live in our homes. It comes from the Word of God. It's the only place. It's the only place. All other ground is shifting sand. All other ground is shifting sand. I can't say it better than A.W. Tozer did in his book, The Pursuit of God. And so I'll read this to you as I close and we'll sing. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork 
are automatically tuned to each other. Has it ever occurred to you, listen, that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, to the same tuning device, are automatically then tuned to one another? They are of one accord by being tuned. Not to each other, but to another standard to which each must individually bow. So 100 worshipers, together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. What is Tozer saying? He's saying that we need that outside standard. We need that solid rock to stand upon. We need Jesus Christ and his righteousness to look to as a husband and as a wife and to say, I can't depend on myself. I can't depend on her. We can both depend on him. And if we both tune our heart's fork to his vibrations, we'll automatically be tuned in harmony to one another. Let's pray.